15 minutes it is after 8 p.m. It's our Thought Leader Thursday segment here on Metro FM Talk, part two of our discussion with Dr. Loazi Lushaba, who is a lecturer in political studies at the University of Cape Town. Now, if you didn't join us last week, I would encourage you to go on our website here at Metro FM and uh, check out uh, the podcasts, take a listen to the discussion we had because it certainly did cover a considerable amount of ground, but clearly not enough. And uh, that's why uh, we asked uh, Dr. Lushaba to join us again this evening. And uh, he joins us all the way from Cape Town. But Alwaz, good evening to you and welcome. Um, the Commandante greets you once more. Greet black people and greet all your listeners. It's good to be back uh, in conversation with you, uh, Aya. Yeah, uh, salute. Greeting, greeting, uh, uh, Commandante. Let's maybe start off here, uh, Praloazi. I mean, I think uh, a lot of people after the chat we had last week uh, were quite enamored by your critique of not just the academy as an institution, but the academy as something that contributes to the production of a particular type of person in the society. Um, and I think that's a perfect place for us to start because uh, we can then build from there to isn't does it loomsy and uh, more sort of national considerations uh, that are worthy of some discussion. No, I, I think it's a very appropriate point to start uh, because I do recall that one of the things we said last week is that unfortunately, post-colonial South Africa has produced a certain figure of the intellectual. Now, this, uh, there's a very recognizable figure of the intellectual that you have in post-colonial South Africa. And what is this figure? It's this figure that is so consumed in individual upward social mobility. It's a figure who you don't get a sense that for whom knowledge has any social responsibility or knowledge is meant to resolve any you know, social problem. Knowledge actually has no relationship you know, with societal problems um, such that this this academic or this intellectual, as we tried to exemplify, you know, last week, Mm. is one that stands in front of a class teaching about injustice, but doesn't see the injustice in the class that he or she is teaching. Mm. You're talking about injustice in a class where perhaps 90% of the students are white, but this injustice, you know, I do not know then how else it manifests itself. You know, we have a course at UCT, to be more exact, Theories of Justice. You know, um, it's an M-field degree. And in that course, you know, Theories of Justice from the South. Mm. Black South Africans constitute only 2%. Now, how more unjust could a place be other than that, in a country where black South Africans constitute 82% of the population. But you have an academic who walks into that class and teaches, you know, theories, you know, of justice, you know, from the South. But there's something more that we must highlight. It is that the, the post-colonial intellectual in South Africa, unlike in other societies within the continent, where you had the first generation of intellectuals who took it upon themselves, to produce in large numbers indigenous intellectuals. I don't get a sense, and I know that I don't get a sense, I know it to be true that Mm. most black intellectuals in South Africa do not think that they owe a responsibility Mm. to producing in large numbers, you know, um, a cater of indigenous intellectuals. Mm. For them, it's a career. So you basically have intellectuals who are no different from 
money makers sure, in any sure. other category of society. Now, there's a debate that went on in the U.S. that may be helpful for us between Du Bois and George Washington. Mm. And, you know, it was over what kind of training should be given to black people. Booker T. Washington, not George, Booker T. Washington was saying, you know, we should train people just, you know, for skills, for a living, you know. Uh, and Du Bois was saying no, because the object of education is not to develop money makers. Training for life teaches living, he said, and training for profit teaches greed and mm. opportunism, he said. I think that we teach we teach for greed and opportunism. Uh, that's that's the sure, unfortunate sure, part that sure. we find ourselves or unfortunate situation we find ourselves yeah. in. Please do allow us at some was, point in the interview yeah. talk about how the nationalist movement in mm. South Africa considers the task of liberation sure, only sure. a political practice. And it's one it's and, something I want us to go to because I think you know in many ways we've relegated the cultural dimensions of our liberation aspiration or template uh, at the altar, I guess, of the marketplace and, of course, the political party as well. Uh, and I want us to come back to that. And uh, also, I mean, in that discussion, if we could speak about a few examples in the third world, on our continent as well, where we've seen clear examples of how the nationalist project, if at all, has been able really to unlock a new cultural reality, um, you know, post the colony or after the moment of independence. Uh, we'll take a brief break now, but when we come back, I, I want us to start on that point and uh, it might be helpful also to get your reflections on the current moment of um, African nationalism in South Africa. It's Thought Leader Thursday uh, here on Metro FM Talk, part two of our discussion with Dr. Loazi Lushaba. And uh, yeah, I uh, would love to hear some of your perspective as well. Uh, we're out on at Metro FMSA there on uh, Twitter. You can also give us a ring on 089-110-3377. But Loazi, I mean, I like that uh, I guess you sort of encouraged us to, to engage with this just before we went to the break because uh, I've been trying to grapple in my mind with this notion of the 20th century in South Africa really being a contestation of two dominant nationalisms, if I can say that. I mean, the one, Afrikaner nationalism, uh, and certainly had a very particular imprint on the uh, journey of development in South Africa. Uh, and then, of course, you know, I guess as the contending force, an African nationalism uh, that had as its idea of liberation, uh, one, the resolution, I guess, of the immediate issues around apartheid, but broadly, what is this idea of the resolution of the national question? Um, and, and I'm quite interested to hear from you, I mean, your thoughts on uh, where that particular project is and, and, and its own limitations in the current moment, uh, and more importantly, I guess, the costs uh, of some of those limitations. Now, <clears throat> let us begin here, Ayabong. Um, um, one is, is that nationalism everywhere is afflicted by this fundamental flaw. Mm. Nationalism accepts Western modernity as a model on which to build society. Mm. The problem nationalism has, it is that it says to the colonialists, leave us with our people, we will modernize them ourselves. What it disagrees with is the fact that we have the white colonialists who bring us this model of the modern as the model to build society on. And then the white colonialists also then drive the actualization of this model. Nationalism everywhere in the continent basically says that 
we do not disagree with the model of the modern. What we do not like is the fact that the colonialists then are in the driving seat. And then they say, leave us with our people, with our societies. We will modernize them ourselves. What they do not ask is, this model of the modern, on what, what does it entail? Mm. Yeah, on what basis? Mm. And who actually crafted this model? Was it crafted for us? Is it suitable for African societies? That's what nationalism everywhere does not ask. Because mm. that secondary question, you know, in fact, which I think is more primary than secondary, that question of what is the model of society that we want to build, what is the image of society that we have, you know, that we want to actualize, that requires understanding that colonialism was not just a political project. It was also an epistemological project. Mm. It was also a project sustained, or rather colonialism was not a project sustained just by the barrel of the gun. Mm. When you say it was also sustained when you say epistemology, by controlling the imagination. Yes. Uh, when you say epistemology, uh, so that's the ambesong, uh, uh, what is it that you mean by that? What I mean about epistemology is not thought that is only you know, relevant in the university. I mean thought generally in society. Mm. I mean theories of the aesthetic. What is the notion of you know, leisure, for instance. Mm. You know, what is the notion of culture, you know, uh, that must prevail in society generally? What's the notion of public morality that must prevail in society? What ought to be the relationship between ourselves and the world? And how ought we be unto each other? Mm. Now, the model of the modern, which comes with colonialism, is that of the West. It is that of an individuated self that only cares about itself, and of course, you know, it's more than that. Now, what we did not question was whether this is the kind of society that we also wanted to build. Mm. That would have required us to engage at an intellectual level with the precepts of colonialism. Colonialism did not come just with the gun. It came with a bag of culture. It came with a bag of how to be in the public life, and even how to constitute the public itself you know, uh, who is part and who is not part of it. What we did not question were precisely those other things. You know, the nationalist elite and the nationalist movement did not have the confidence to actually, from scratch, map us a model of society that is not that of the West. Mm. This is where the nationalist elite fails mm. everywhere. Mm. When the Western model grounds to a halt, it has no answer. So this is where you should pardon the ANC, um, so that I, we may get, you know, to where no, we I mean, are that's now. where we're going. Yeah, yeah, that's where we're going. And maybe it's not just the issue of the ANC, because there are many other organizations that would be broadly defined as African nationalist. Um, you know, I mean, if I think of the Pan-Africanist Congress, if I think of, you know, many other liberation movements in our continent as well, who subscribed in in their own creed to African nationalism, I guess, uh, would be faced with the, the same kind of challenges. Precisely. That is why even in societies where you have more pan-Africanist, you know, oriented organizations in mm. the continent, they also ground to a halt after a while because they also function on the same model, you know, of the model mm. that they did not quite question. So this is why I think we should pardon, in South African case, the ANC. And you're right, then, we must be, this is where I think we should actually, you know, push 
you know, the, the envelope a little. Mm. It is not just the ANC. It is any organization that subscribes to the model of the model. And even leftist organizations, by the way, because sure, they sure. subscribe to the idea of progress, mm. you know, the idea of modernizing society. And they all fall into the same trap without recognizing it, mm. you know. Because you don't get a sense that they are saying, we want to build a different model of the society. What they are saying is that the ANC is not doing it right. Mm, mm. You know, we will do it better than the ANC. It, it, they it, haven't given yeah. us a completely different blueprint. What would be the cultural sure, articulation sure. of our freedom? Mm. What would be the articulation of our freedom at the level of thought? What would be the articulation of our freedom, you know, at the level of everyday, you know, public consumption? They haven't given us, you know, mm. quite that model. You know, Praloaz, just, just on that, I mean, I, and I don't want us to, to move from this one without maybe us interrogating this. Yes. I'm also interested in the implication of this kind of monocropping uh, um, of not only just your idea of what you want socially, politically, economically, and otherwise, but just at the level of, uh, you know, epistemology and existentially as well. Um, yes. What are the implications in the current moment where we are in a conjuncture where there are clear ecological and other limits to this rapacious culture of consumerism and accumulation. There are also now embedded tensions, uh, and you see this in the, ta- in the kinds of nationalisms that are emerging. I mean, we talk about vaccine apartheid, we talk about vaccine nationalism, as yeah. if it's something distinct from the kind of you know, uh, nationalisms that have emerged from the West in the contemporary period. What becomes the cost of not being able to break out of that envelope in the current moment for nationalists, not just in the ANC, but nationalists in ZANU, nationalists in Frilimo, nationalists in MPLA and other organizations? Here is the implication. It is that, you see, that idea um, that we must modernize society gives us a very fallacious you know, idea of progress where we are all assumed as societies to move through a unilinear path mm. where we begin from the same stage where we all go through the same successive stages until we arrive at the ultimate stage of development. The West, we think, you know, has gone through these successive stages and has arrived at the ultimate stage. And we are supposed to follow precisely behind and go through the same successive stages, you know, until we arrive at that point. Here is the fallacy. The West is not waiting for us to arrive at where it is. So if you subscribe to that modernization of society, that unilinear development of society, and you hold the West as your model, your model, your modular example is not sitting waiting for you so that you catch up with it. Mm. It's progressing. It's progressing in the sense that it's creating new contradictions and very deadly contradictions, as you have mentioned. Mm. Now, when you continue to follow their model, you are also going to be going through their same contradictions. So what you are basically inheriting unto yourself or bringing unto yourself, it's their contradictions that they went through long ago Mm. and are now creating new ones, and you want to go through the same contradictions. And so they had a contradiction, they had, you know, within the society, a contradiction, you know, of consumption, over-consumption, which is still, you know, existing. Mm. And they had diseases, lifestyle diseases. South Africa is going through exactly the same thing. Mm. Every day, medical mm. doctors tell us that our burden of disease is largely as a result of lifestyle. lifestyle Once choices, people yeah. start working in South Africa, they consume you know, in a very unhealthy way. And mm. that's why we have diabetes, blood pressure, and all of those lifestyle mm. diseases. 
These are things that the West went through when they became affluent. Why didn't we see that these are the problems that Western modern life brings about? Mm. These are the consequences of following the model, you know, of the West, because then all their ills we also inherit. Yeah. And the ills, by the way, become much more pronounced for us because sure. for them they have the luxury of having us as the non-Western mm. world as a place onto which to offload those contradictions from the West. Have we learned anything around how we resolve not just those contradictions, but even the essential antagonisms from their experience? Because, I, I mean, I like the point you make, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, some people, Marxists would say, for instance, you know, one of those antagonisms is a distributional conflict between owners of the means of production and those who sell their labor power. But I yes. think an accepted, you know, understanding, certainly in many in our generation, is that there are limitations to that as well, because there's also, I guess, the slave relation. There's also, you know, the uh, um, ontological dimensions uh, to having lived in a colonial society where effectively, you know, a worker subjectivity does not capture the antagonistic relationship between the settler colo colonist and, of course, uh, I guess the native per se. And I'm quite interested in, in what we, we have learned, if at all on one, how to resolve those antagonisms, and maybe secondly, how not to. Hello? Hi, you still there? Yes, yes. On how not to? Yes. Sorry, the last part. No, you, no, you, so, the, you, so the question I'm asking is, have we learned anything from that experience on how to deal with the antagonisms, and maybe, alternatively, how not to? I, I think you've put, you, you've just, you know, said it perhaps better than me. Here's the point. The relationship between the colonizer and the colonized is not only constituted in the market. Mm. In fact, I would hasten to say that it is not constituted in the market at all. It is precisely that relationship between the colonizer and the colonized that renders market categories and relations possible. So you can't use the market to resolve the problems of colonialism because the relations of colonialism, which are the relations between the colonizer and the colonized, are not forged in the market at all. So people who keep telling us about if you, you know, attend to the contradictions between the bourgeois and the working class, mm. then you would have attended to all the fundamental problems in society. They miss it because under colonialism, the relations, the colonial relations are not forged in the market. What renders those market relations are the colonial relations, which are nothing but racial relations. Mm. So if we continue again, we then inherit from the West. This is the limitation of leftist organizations, you know, whether nationalist or, you know, or otherwise, communist, yeah, which, yeah. Mm. which keep, you know, uh, harping onto, you know, the Marxist contradiction. As if in the colony, the primary contradiction is the contradiction of capitalism. Mm, mm. What renders capitalism possible in the colonies is, you know, colonialism yeah, itself. Yeah, the coercive force of colonialism. Because without that violent, coercive, and social controlling force of settler colonialism, I mean, there's no conditions within which capitalism can take root. Not at all. And what we haven't learned, uh, and this, here I have to be specific to South Africa, it is that we had the fortune as a country. We were the last country within the continent mm. to gain independence. So we had the example of the rest of the continent. We had seen what had happened in the continent in colonies of domination and in settler colonies. Mm. So we ought to have benefited from the fact that we were the latest 
to join the Committee of Independent African States. And so we should have said, this is where the nationalist project ground to a halt in the rest of the continent. How may we avoid those pitfalls? Mm. This is where we must blame not just the nationalist elite, but also the intellectuals sure, sure, sure. You know, uh, in this society. Because you found intellectuals in this country who joined in the colonial mantra suggesting that South Africa was different from the rest of the continent. Mm. Mm. We listened day in and day out. You know, people who are called uh, political analysts on radio and in TV <laughs> tell us, oh, no, but, you know, South Africa is not quite like Nigeria. South Africa is not quite like Kenya. South Africa is not quite like, you know, not realizing that they had bought into the myth of South African exceptionalism. Mm. And what we lost in the process was the comparative lesson that we ought to have learned from the continent. Now, this is what they were hurrying to say. They were hurrying to say, oh, no, South Africa is much more developed. When you compare, you don't compare just for the positives. Mm. We should also have compared, you know, for what went wrong in the nationalist, you know, post-colonial project in those societies. So we lost that possibility of comparative learning because we had intellectuals. I do not know, you know, uh, what... Yes. We've got about three minutes, and I think the point you're raising, I mean, is something we get attacked on a lot on this platform because, you know, one of our mantras is that even this phenomenon of colonial borders on the continent is a very recent phenomenon uh, in the yes. human history of this continent. Um, and this essentialization of this idea that I'm a South African in relation to yourself, maybe as Basoto uh, or someone who's Mutwana, uh, is hmm. something that's fundamentally. Uh, you know, mobilized by certain conservative forces. And I, and I want to maybe hear your views on that because many people say, yeah, well, you are armchair critic, you, you're a middle-class intellectual. You can say that because you're not sitting in a community where you're co- in contestation for resources uh, with people that weren't necessarily by accident of birth born here. Now, that's a very, that's a very important point. Um, and there are a number of things, you know, to be said about, about, about that fact. There is no doubt, I mean, it's a historical fact that the borders we live with, you know, were created by colonialism. It was the Berlin Conference, 1884-1885, that basically drew the map that we, that we live with, you know, today. What is the reality today is that because the rest of the continent, again, the limitations of the nationalist elite, you know, um, Fanon deals with it. You know, the nationalist elite gets comfortable in its independence and begins to protect, you know, these colonially bequeathed states as their freedom. So everyone, the nationalist elite in Zimbabwe, the nationalist elite in Nigeria, protect the state as if it has always existed solely for the purpose of profiting, you know, from it. Over time, you then create identities that are built around these artificial boundaries. Now, the project, the project to undo those attachments will have to be a project that is all-inclusive, if not all-inclusive, that at least has a critical support within the continent. Because Mm. what cannot happen, Mm. you know, is that South Africa on its own is not going to be able to undo that. Sure. So what you are not going to be able to do is to say, let's open up South Africa and think that you've resolved the problem. I lived in Nigeria for years. I mean, it's a better example to give, but, you know, um, I hope it's taken in the the sense in which I'm trying to make. Mm. I lived in Nigeria for six years. I could never become a citizen because 
citizenship in Nigeria is reserved. The Constitution of Nigeria is very specific. You're, you know, you must have been born of parents, you know, whose parents are indigenous to Nigeria. Mm. Now, what you cannot do is to then think that you can resolve the problem singly in South Africa. We have to converse enough support for it sure. so that we all move in unison. We might not agree. We, we can never agree, all of us, throughout the country. Yes. we'll have to leave it there. Oh. But uh, Commandante, really appreciate it, Camarada. Thank you very much for your time this evening, for this part two. And uh, Well, not